punching the clock this week on Selected Shorts. I'm Malik Pancholi, and you're listening to Selected Shorts, where our greatest actors transport us through the magic of fiction, one short story at a time. While I have hosted Selected Shorts in the past, I want to be sure and introduce myself to anyone who doesn't know me. As an actor, you might remember me from roles on 30 Rock or Weeds, or you may recognize my voice, although I sound a little bit different on animated shows like Phineas and Ferb. I've been performing with Selected Shorts since 2015, and it is one of my favorite things to do. You see, ever since I was a kid, I've loved stories. I used to spend countless hours with my bedroom door shut, curled up with a book, letting my imagination soar. And now I'm a writer for young readers myself. My debut novel, The Best at It, received a Stonewall honor from the American Library Association, and my second novel comes out in 2022. Now, all of that may sound... Um, glittery. But like everyone else, I've done some tough jobs that I needed to imagine my way out of. As the U.S. continues to become a nation of gig workers, we thought it'd be interesting to explore some stories about day jobs. The sort of employment that we talk about when we say the daily grind. While these jobs might have good perks or make you feel secure, it's impossible to ignore the power dynamics. We're going to hear three stories in three settings with three different employees doing their best to make a living. In a diner, a busy waitress defends her territory. In a typesetting office, a bohemian artist speaks truth in comedy. And at a hip startup, an interviewee learns about a secret organization that sells nothing less than cultural capital. I wish I could give you a clue about the twist in that last one, but let me just say that after you hear it, you might understand the mystery of many high-profile celebrity friendships. The first of these stories, Bayonne, is by American short story giant John Cheever. Cheever is a known chronicler of white, middle-class society of the mid-20th century. But anyone familiar with his novel, The Wapshot Chronicle, knows that Cheever takes on struggling blue-collar laborers, too. This story, published in 1936, concerns a pair of American archetypes, the diner and the chatty, long-suffering diner waitress. It's affectionate and a little demeaning, and our performer picks up on all the nuances. She is a dedicated, multi-talented actor whose film credits include Being John Malkovich, Girl Interrupted, and Diane. Here's Mary Kay Place reading John Cheever's Bayonne. The lunch cart was in the market district near the shore of the North River. The sidewalk was lined with boxed vegetables and fruits, and the chicken market, smelling of warm mold and manure, was only a block away. The street always seemed to be jammed with trucks and wagons. The Ninth Avenue L ran overhead, and you could hardly hear the noise it made above the roar of the traffic and the shouting and bang klaxons on the interstate trucks. 
Most of the customers were market men or trucksters. There wasn't much business in the late morning. A few men came in for buns and coffee, that was all. But at noon, the place was so crowded that you had to wait 10 minutes sometimes for a stool to sit on. Then, at half past one, business would begin to get slow, and at half past two, the place would be empty again, excepting a few men drinking coffee or hanging around the baseball machine. The district emptied in the same way, and at seven o'clock, the neighborhood was silent and deserted, excepting for some men standing on the piers watching the harbor traffic or an empty crosstown trolley car or a drunk stumbling along the sidewalk heading for the saloons further north. At seven o'clock, they mopped up the lunch cart, stacked the chairs onto the tables, and closed the place until morning. The crowd at noon hour was the only thing that kept the place going. There were four men working the counter, and then on the other side of the cart, there was a single line of tables, and they had a waitress to serve these. Her name was Harriet, but everyone called her Bayonne. One day, one of the butchers had asked her where she came from. Bayonne, she said. I do too, he said. Oh, quit your kidding, she said. I'm not kidding, that's straight. Hey, Bayonne, one of the other men at the table shouted, draw one. She answered him, and after that, everyone called her Bayonne. She was a woman in her early 40s, and she had been married once, but she was living alone then. What street do you live on? One of the men asked her, Macon Street. Live with your family? No, I live alone. Married? Used to be. Hey, Bayonne, service! She never had much time to answer their questions fully, but she always gave them some reply as she raced between the tables and the serving counter with the loaded trays. She wore a black uniform and a pair of low-heeled, dusty shoes that were cracked and run to the sides with use. Her face was full and pleasant, and her nose was slightly crooked as if it had been broken. Her hair was dyed a lusterless straw color, but the original shade, a much deeper blonde, showed at the parting in the middle of her head. It was curled in brief, unnatural waves that looked as though they had been set with a scorching iron. Her figure wasn't good. Her calves were thick and heavy and her breasts were flat, but she carried herself well. She walked as if she were beautiful and attractive and as if she knew it. While she was waiting for orders, she would give a reassuring touch to the hair at the back of her head and smile the men sitting by the counter. All of them liked her. The only time she was really rushed was during the two hours at noon, but it was hard and steady work then. The tables held about 50 people, and she had to wait on all of them. They shouted their orders, and she repeated them to the counterman who bawled them out to the men at the steam tables. Along with this, she tried to keep up a conversation and flirt with the customers. The rush made her hoarse and killed her legs, but she liked it. She liked it so much that in the mornings before it began, she was restless. 
She would walk back and forth between the empty windows, patting the hair at the back of her head and looking out the dingy windows at the traffic. She would take a small compact out of the pocket of her uniform and powder her nose in the mirror above the cigarette machine. She would cross the cart and lean on the counter and watch the men load the steam tables. I wished they would hurry up and come in. I'd rather work than hang around like this. Oh, there'll be plenty to do, Bayonne. What's your hurry? Oh, I don't know, but I just, I'd rather work than hang around like this. At about noon, the men would begin to crowd in. All of them said hello to her, and she smiled and answered all of them. She was not pretty, but she was attractive in the way she answered their questions and reached across their shoulders in the way she carried herself. Gradually, the din in the place would increase. The conversation of the customers would rise to a roar above the clatter of dishes and the bawling countermen in her loud, clear voice. Hey, Bayonne! Over here, Bayonne! Some pie, Bayonne! She raced back and forth, laughing and joking and holding hands with the customers while they decided on their orders. The din and the admiration of the men and the rattle of crockery seemed to intoxicate her. Like the swelling rain of applause to an actress or the thunder of hooves and the smell of tan bark to a racing tout, her step was light and firm and quick, and although the place was crowded, she always worked her way quickly through the crowd and never dropped or spilled dishes. She walked with her head up, occasionally shaking it to toss back the dry, straw-colored hair. Her body was then unconsciously alive and vital. Her eyes were bright, and she smiled continually, the quiet, restrained smile of a woman walking in the power of men's admiration. But at half past two, it was all over. She was tired then. She would mop off the tables and go into the washroom for a cigarette and talk with the chef through the door. Tired, Bayonne? Yeah, but I like it. You know, you just, you get to like it. She had been working there for two years, doing all the work without any help, when the uptown management decided to send her an assistant. That was the way the management usually worked. The head counterman received the notice, and he told her about it. You're going to get an assistant, Bayon. She was standing at the other end of the cart, looking out of the window, What's that? Uh, You're going to get an assistant. She walked down the cart. Um, You mean I'm going to have someone to help me wait on the tables? That's it. But I don't need any help. I know you don't, but you can't do anything about it. If they want to throw away another salary, it's all right by me. They must be crazy, she said. They are, but it's not our fault. Is it going to be a woman? I guess so. When's she coming? This morning. (sighs) Payon sighed and sat down on one of the stools. I'd rather do it alone, she said. It's going to make a lot of trouble. She'll be dumb, and I'll have to break her in. It was going all right. Why do they have to butt in? They don't know anything about it. We'll be stepping all over each other. That was all she saw in it. Then, 
She could take care of the customers herself, and it irritated her to think of dividing the work and breaking in another girl. But at 10 o'clock, when the girl came in, looking around confusedly and wondering if she had the wrong address, Bayonne knew that it would mean something else. She went into the washroom and looked at herself in the mirror. The other girl was much younger. She was about 20. She had worked in lunch carts before, and she knew how to do the work. She had the manners of an old waitress, unrestrained, flirtatious, and cynical. Her posture was erect and easy, as erect as a singer's. Her legs were trim, and her figure was good. When a man asked her for the ketchup, she smiled and said quietly, There isn't anything I wouldn't do for you. Her arms reaching across the counters for orders were slim and white compared to Bayonne's scrawny, muscular arms. Bayonne didn't have to teach her anything. She was perfect. When the rush began, she took half the tables and waited on them smoothly and quickly. Bayonne kept watching her, not because she was afraid she would make some mistake, but in order to see whether the men she had served for so long would miss her or be satisfied with the younger substitute. The men didn't miss her at all. She looked anxiously for the faces that were the most familiar and attractive and saw them happily kidding the other girl. She was so distracted during the first of the rush that she kept bringing the wrong orders and slopping coffee into the saucers. Then she decided to forget about it and put all of her attention into the work. But the men kept reminding her. Got some competition now, Bayon. Is that your daughter? Hey, who's the new girl? At two o'clock, the business fell off and they began to get the tables cleared and the dishes washed. At three, the place was nearly empty. Bayonne went over to the other girl and asked her how she liked it. Oh, it's all right, she said. I've seen worse. I like it all right. It's a good business, Bayonne said, but it wears you down. Look at my legs. She shrugged her shoulders. And I used to have good legs, too. It does wear you down, the girl said, but I'm used to it. I've been doing it a couple of years now. She spoke with dry and different acceptance. Where'd you work before? Up in Yorkville. It was all right. It was about the same size as this place, only the business was slower and steadier. If it was slower and steadier here, it would be easier to take care of. It's the two hours rush and then sitting around for the rest of the time that takes it out of you. At five o'clock, she changed from her uniform into street clothing. When she had finished dressing, she was waiting for the younger girl. Want to go out for a beer? She said. Sure. I got a date at six, but I guess I got the time. They went into the back room of a saloon around the corner, and Bayonne ordered two lagers. I don't drink much, she said, and I don't like beer, but what else can you drink on the salary we get? And if I drink too much, I can't work well in the next day, and this job takes everything. How long have you been here? Two years. How's the management? 
awful. Honestly, they'll fire you without notice or transfer you to another cart. They're the worst company I ever worked for. The young girl tasted her lager. She didn't say anything. You're pretty young to get into this, aren't you? Bayon said. Oh, I don't know. I'm young enough, I guess, but I can't seem to find anything else to do. Oh, I, I shouldn't think you'd have much trouble in finding something to do. You're young and good-looking. I should think you'd get a job in a class restaurant uptown somewhere. Have you ever tried? <laughs> I've tried, but I never had the money to register at any of the good agencies. How much does it cost? Fifteen <laughs> or twenty dollars. I'll lend you the money. The girl looked at her curiously. <laughs> you, you mean you'll lend me the money to register? Sure, that's it. But why should you want to loan me money to get a job? I, I don't understand you. If you've got the money, why don't you try it yourself? And you don't even know me anyhow. You've never seen me before. I may never show up again. Oh, I, I know you're all right. I can see it in your face. And I just don't like to see a young girl like you wasting yourself in a place like that. But I don't mind it. No, you don't mind it now, but you will. It gets you down. It spoils your legs and your health. You're too tired to go out at night. Sometimes I'm so tired I can't even sleep. Listen, uh, the girl said, half standing. It's 20 minutes of six. I got to get uptown. I'll see you in the morning. Wait a minute. Wait, 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 wait a minute. Let's, let's get this straight. If you want to sign off this job, I'll bring you the money tomorrow morning, and you can apply at one of the agencies. I'm just doing it for your own good. I, I just don't want to see you wasting your life in that place. But why should you get so worried about me? I'm all right, and, and you don't know me anyhow. I just don't understand you. She looked at the younger girl steadily and curiously, as if she were looking at herself in a mirror. No, I guess you can't understand me, she said quietly. I guess you're too young to understand me. I, I guess you've never known what it feels like. Oh, I can't think of anything that would make you understand. Have you ever fallen asleep with your clothes on and felt cold and stiff when you woke up and found out that it had grown dark? Have you ever? It, it's something like that. And then, uh, listen, younger girl said, I got to get uptown. I'll be late. I'll, I'll see you in the morning. She stood and fished in her purse for a dime and put it down on the table. That's for the beer, she said. I'll, I'll see you in the morning. Wait a minute, wait a minute. No, I'll see you in the morning, she repeated. She was still trying to be polite. Goodbye, she said, and she walked through the bar room and out the door. Bayonne heard the door close. She drained her glass and gathered her purse and gloves and looked at herself in the mirror. Then she paid for the beer and went out into the street. She glanced up at the sky, it was whitening. The neighborhood was already empty. She walked south along the deserted sidewalk. 
She didn't turn up for work on the next morning or any of the mornings that followed. She didn't even come back for her clothing that still hangs there from a hook in the washroom. That was Bayonne by John Cheever, performed by Mary Kay Place. I'm Malik Pancholi. Cheever almost feels like a fly on the wall of the diner, doesn't he? By calling the story Bayonne, he tells us the waitress has surrendered to others' perceptions about her. And then he gives us his take on the dedicated, exhausted, and protective woman behind the name. I first read John Cheever in college in a performance studies class called Performing the American Fifties, taught by Paul Edwards. And while Bayonne was written in the 1930s, it's easy to see in this early work of his the themes that he revisited so many times after that, our human anxieties in a changing world. What is it like to be a giant in a world of tiny stories? We'll have to ask Lydia Davis, the author behind our next story. Though Davis is also a novelist and translator, she is best known for creating entire worlds in tales the size of a paragraph. Take a peek at the collected stories of Lydia Davis to get the full effect. This story, about passion versus vocation, is longer but no less precise. Performing it is the late, great David Rakoff, He was a funny, mildly misanthropic writer of personal essays who died in 2012. Thankfully, his work is available in collections such as Half Empty. Rakoff was also incredibly endearing live, and he performed and hosted at Selected Shorts regularly. This story was recorded at a show from over a decade ago themed A Night at the Office. But David's reading is just so wry and playful, we had to bring it back. Here's David Rakoff performing Lydia Davis's Alvin the Typesetter. Alvin and I worked together typesetting for a weekly newspaper in Brooklyn. We came in every Friday. This was the autumn that Reagan was elected president and everyone at the newspaper suffered from a sense of foreboding and depression. (laughs) The old gray typesetting machines with their scratches and scars were set back to back in a tiny room next to the toilet. People raced in and out of the toilet all day long and the sound of flushing was always in our ears. Pinned to the corkboard walls around us as we bent over our keyboards was an ever-thickening forest of paper strips. The damp paper strips were covered with type, and when they had dried, they were taken away by the paste-up people to become columns on the newspaper page. The work we had to do was not hard, but it required patience and care, and we were under constant pressure to work faster. I typed straight copy, and Alvin set ads. If the machines stopped rumbling for more than a few minutes, the boss would come downstairs to see what was holding us up. And so Alvin and I continued to type while we had our lunch, And when we talked to each other, as we did from time to time, we talked surreptitiously, sticking our eyes up over the tops of our machines. We were blue-collar workers. Every time I thought about how we were blue-collar workers, it surprised me because 
We were also, with any luck, performing artists. I played the violin. As for Alvin, he was a stand-up comedian. Every Friday, Alvin told me about his career and his life. For seven months, he had auditioned over and over again without success at a well-known club. At last, the manager had relented and given him a spot. Every week now, he came on in the dead early hours of Sunday morning for five minutes to close the show. Sometimes the audience liked him, and sometimes it did not respond at all. If the manager occasionally left him on stage for 10 minutes or gave him a spot earlier in the evening at 9.30, Alvin felt this was an important advance in his career. Alvin could not describe his art except to say that he had no script, no routine, that he never knew just what would happen on stage and that this lack of preparation was part of his act. From the snatches of monologue he spoke for me, however, I could see that some of his patter was about sex, he made jokes about cream and sperm, and that some of his patter was about politics and that he also liked to do impersonations. He usually worked without any props. In the week of election day in November, he carried to the nightclub a special patriotic kerchief covered with red, white, and blue American symbols to wear over his head. Most often, though, what he took out on stage was only himself, as though his long, solemn face were a mask or his body a marionette that he controlled with strings from above, slim, loose-jointed, floating over the floor. He had his stance, his silences, his bald head and his clothes. He wore the same clothes on stage that he wore to work, dark formal pants and often a shirt of cheap synthetic material covered with palm trees or pine trees on a white background. When I arrived at the office, Alvin would be typing at his machine in his stocking feet, and his long, narrow shoes would be sitting next to my machine. If Alvin was glum, neither of us said much. If he was elated, he could not help standing up from his machine and talking. And on some days, I would speak to him, and he would look at me blankly. He would later admit that he had been smoking hash for days on end. <laughs> Over the clicking of the machines, Alvin told me that he lived apart from his wife and son. His son did not like Alvin's friends or the food Alvin ate and made the same excuse over and over again not to see him. He told me about his circle of friends, a group of Brooklyn vegetarians. He was planning to eat Thanksgiving dinner with these vegetarians, and he was planning to spend the Christmas holiday sleeping at the YMCA. He told me about his travels to Boston and places in New Jersey. <laughs> He told me about the typesetters agency that never found him any work. Don't I seem ambitious to you? He asked. He complained to me about the lack of order in our office and about the poor writing in the pieces we were given to typeset. He said it was not part of his job to correct spelling and grammar. He told me with indignation that he would not do more than should be expected of him. He and I had a sense of our superiority to those in charge of us. And this was only aggravated by the fact that we were so often treated as though we had no education. Because Alvin was good-natured and presented himself to the rest of the newspaper staff without reservation, because his whole art consisted of isolating and exposing himself as a figure of fun, he was well-liked by many of them, but also became a natural victim of some. 
The manager of the production department, for instance, kept pushing him to work faster and often had him do his ads over and over again and talked against Alvin behind his back. Alvin responded to this goading with injured pride. But worse than the production manager was the owner of the paper, who worked most of the week upstairs in his office, but on press day came down to the production office and sat on a stool alongside the others. He was a little man with a red mustache and glasses who wore his flannel shirts tucked into his blue jeans and smelled of deodorant when he became excited. <laughs> he never walked slowly, and he was in and out of the toilet faster than anyone else. <laughs> no sooner had the door shut behind him than we would hear the thunderous flush from the tank overhead, and he would spring out the door again. For much of the week, he talked to his employees with good humor, though not to us, the typesetters, and tolerated the caricatures of his face posted all over the room and the remarks about him written on the toilet wall. On press day, however, and when things were going badly at the paper, his sense of catastrophe would drive him to turn on us one by one and dress us down publicly in a way that was humiliating and surrounded by silence. What made this treatment especially hard to accept was that our pay was low and our paychecks bounced regularly. <laughs> the accountant upstairs could not keep track of where the money was, and she added on her fingers. <laughs> Alvin received the worst of it and hardly defended himself at all. I thought you said, I thought they told me to, I thought I was supposed to. Any answer he made provoked another outburst from the boss until Alvin retired in silence. I was embarrassed by his lack of pride. He was afraid of losing his job. But after Christmas, his attitude changed. Over the holidays, Alvin and I both performed. I played the violin in a concert of excerpts from The Messiah. Alvin's performance was to be an entire evening of monologues and songs at a local club run by a friend. Before the event, Alvin handed out a Xerox flyer with crooked lettering and a picture of himself wearing a beret. In his text, he called himself the widely acclaimed. <laughs> the tickets were $5. Our newspaper ran an ad for his performance, and everyone who worked with us there showed great interest in the event, though when the evening came, no one from the newspaper actually went to see him. When Alvin came in to work on the Friday following his performance, he was the center of attention for a few minutes, and an aura of celebrity floated around him. But Alvin told a sad tale. There were only five people in the audience at his performance. Four were fellow comedians, and the fifth was Alvin's friend Ira, who talked throughout his monologues. <laughs> Alvin was eloquent about his failure. He described the room, his friend, the owner, his friend Ira, he talked for five minutes. The boss, who had been listening with the others, grew restless and distracted and told Alvin there was work waiting for him. Alvin raised a hand in concession and went into the typesetting room. The production people returned to their stools and bent over their pages. Our machines began rumbling. The boss hurried upstairs. Then Alvin stopped typing. His pupils were dilated, and he looked particularly remote. He stood up and walked out, 
he said to the production room at large, listen, I have work to do, but I haven't started yet. I would like to perform for you first. <laughs> Most of the production people smiled because they liked Alvin. Now I'm going to impersonate a chicken, he said. <laughs> he climbed up on a stool and started flapping his arms and clucking. The room was quiet. The production people perched on their long-legged stools like a flock of resting egrets and stared at this bald chicken. <laughs> when there was no applause, Alvin shrugged and climbed down and said, now I'm going to impersonate a duck, and waddled across the room with his knees bent and toes turned in. The production people glanced around the room at one another. Their looks darted and hopped like sparrows. They gave Alvin a spattering of applause. Then he said, now I'm going to do a pigeon. He shook his shoulders and jerked his head forward and back as he strutted in the circular patterns of a courting pigeon. He managed to convey something of the ostentation of a male pigeon. Abruptly, he stopped and said to his audience, well, don't you have any work to do? What are you sitting around for? All of this should have been done yesterday. The little hair he had was poking straight out from his head as though he were full of electricity. He swallowed his saliva. That's all we are, he said. A bunch of dumb birds. The smiles faded from the faces of his audience. The weariness of that leafless late December, our fear of our weakened government, our dread of its repressive spirit descended on us once again. Into the abrupt silence came the chiming of a church bell across the street. The production manager by reflex checked his watch. Alvin's body sagged. He turned and walked into our tiny room. The back of his head had its own expression of defeat. For a moment, everyone stared at him in amazement. He sat slumped over his machine, solitary, flooded by fluorescent light, exhausted by his performance. He had not been very funny. In fact, he was a poor actor. And yet, something about his act had been impressive. His grim determination, the violence of his feelings. One by one, the production people went back to work. Paper rustled, scissors clattered on the stone tabletop. Murmurs passed back and forth over the sound of the radio. I sat at my machine and Alvin looked up at me from under his heavy lids. His look carried all the hurt, the humiliation, the mockery of the past few months. He said without smiling, they think I'm nothing. They can think what they like. I have my plans. That was David Rakoff performing Alvin the Typesetter by Lydia Davis. Speaking of day jobs, here's a fun fact. When I first moved to New York, I was an office temp. I was the assistant to the assistant 
to Evelyn and Leonard Lauder at the Estee Lauder companies. In fact, I was at this job when the audition for 30 Rock came around. I simply darted down nine blocks from Estee Lauder on 59th Street to 30 Rockefeller Plaza on 50th Street to get to the audition on my lunch break. I didn't even have to change clothes because I was, well, already dressed as an assistant. When we come back, a super secret organization and the job offer of a lifetime. I'm Malik Pancholi. You're listening to Selected Shorts recorded live in performance at Symphony Space in New York City and at other venues nationwide. Welcome back. This is Selected Shorts, where our greatest actors transport us through the magic of fiction, one short story at a time. I'm Malik Pancholi. If you're just joining us or missed a bit of the first half of the show, no problem. The easiest way to find the entire show is on our website, selectedshorts.org. While there, just tap the subscribe to podcast button and you'll find links to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, and others. And if you like what you hear, please share it. This episode is all about jobs and just how much of our lives we surrender to them. In our first two stories, we heard about low-wage jobs with little economic promise. So what about a job that promises money and status for doing almost nothing, other than surrendering your dignity. That's what's on offer in our final story, OBF Inc. by Bernice L. McFadden. McFadden is a novelist whose titles include Sugar and The Book of Harlan. Her work tackles serious subjects. But as you'll hear, this piece shows off a pointed comic sensibility while talking about race in America. Reading the story is a longtime actor who's been a regular presence on Broadway and has shown up in films from A Beautiful Mind to Night at the Museum. This is Tegel F. Bouget performing OBF Inc. by Bernice L. McFadden. Andrew was entering his third month of unemployment when he sat down at his computer and opened the inbox of his LinkedIn account. He'd received a response to a query he'd sent off four days after his friend-turned-manager walked him into a conference room swimming with sunlight, smelling of cologne, and the faintest hint of perfume left behind by a group of attorneys who'd recently vacated the space after a five-hour meeting. "'I'm sorry, man,' Colin Perkins had said." Andrew's eyes glided to the glass conference table, landing on the silver tray holding a molehill of bagels. He imagined they must be stale by now, having been left there uncovered in the icy office air. Someone had planted the pointed end of a white plastic knife in an open container of chive and jalapeno cream cheese. It brought to mind the moon landing. All that was missing was a tiny American flag. A laugh trudged up his throat, but he disguised it as a cough. I told you, Colin continued, raking his hands over his manicured afro, that the last to hire would be the first to go. 
A month earlier, 17 women and two men had accused the CEO of the company of sexual misconduct. That news had plummeted the stock. The layoffs followed. Andrew had witnessed dozens of employees being escorted by security from the building like criminals. Now it was his turn. Andrew nodded, placing a comforting hand on Daniel's shoulder and squeezed. The crisp cotton of Daniel's shirt felt cool beneath his palm. It's okay, man. I understand. Don't sweat it. He'd spent that first week revamping his resume, calling friends and old colleagues, people who might know of a job opportunity at their own place of employment or elsewhere. He'd never had a LinkedIn account, but took the time to set one up. To conserve the little bit of savings he had, Andrew dropped his gym membership and went back to drinking tap water instead of the bottled Evian he loved. He gave up Starbucks coffee and the expensive Cabernet Sauvignon he purchased by the case. By week three, he was spending his days on the couch, dressed in boxer shorts and sweat socks. He'd stopped opening the blinds and only went outside to empty the garbage. He whiled away the hours playing video games and watching Netflix and Pornhub. Oftentimes, he went days without brushing his teeth. When his mother called to check on him, Andrew lied, claiming he had several interviews lined up. When his father took the phone into another room to ask if he needed money, Andrew assured him that he was fine on the financial front, even though he wasn't. He'd made up his mind to sell his Shelby Mustang before he took a dime from his parents. That was a big decision because he loved that car more than he'd ever loved any woman. The day he opened the email, the panic had just started to set in. He could feel it creeping along the back of his neck, like the soft scuttle of caterpillar legs. From OBF Inc. to Andrew Jameson. Dear Mr. Jameson, we found your resume to be very interesting and believe that you would be the perfect addition to our dynamic team of client liaisons. Paid training, affordable benefits for you, your spouse, and or children after 90 days. Opportunities to advance within hourly overtime and tremendous bonus opportunities. If you love helping others, then you will love working for OBF Inc. OBF Inc. wants to talk to you now. To set up an interview, text OBF51893. Liaison was just a fancy French word for customer service agent. Well, that was his skill set. Andrew was an expert at assisting people. He texted the number and received an instant response that directed him to call a telephone number and enter his personal code, 1032. An automated voice offered him two available interview dates. He was instructed to press one for the first date and two for the second. The mechanical voice told him that he would receive a call advising him where the interview would take place. It all seemed very clandestine. Andrew was cynical, but his desperation outweighed his skepticism. A day later, he received a call from a woman with a southern drawl. Georgia, Alabama, Texas, he couldn't quite pinpoint where she hailed from, but listening to her speak conjured visions of sweet tea and fireflies. She asked for his full name, his full government name, and the code he'd received via text message. There was a pause, two clicks, and then the syrupy voice asked if he had a pen available. He did. 
After she'd rattled off the address, she wished him good luck. There were a few more clicks, and then the line went dead. He walked into the lobby of the 40-story office building and was struck by the contemporary opulence of the space. Marble floors, potted palms that towered eight feet into the air, white leather sofas, and a slick-looking Louboutin red reception desk. Andrew presented his license to the security guard and was given a name tag, which he clipped to the lapel of his ash-gray jacket. He was told to go to the 18th floor. While waiting for the elevator, he perused the list of companies listed on the plaque mounted to the wall. OBF Inc. was nowhere to be found. He smirked, shrugged his shoulders, and stepped into the elevator. On the 18th floor, smack outside of the elevator door, was a sheet of lined legal paper taped haphazardly to the wall. Scrawled on its face in black marker was, This Way to OBF Inc. Below that was an arrow. He started down the hall. A man, the color of cedar and as tall as an NBA player, speed-walked past him, mumbling to himself. Andrew thought he looked dazed, as if he'd just received news that a loved one had passed away. Good morning, Andrew murmured. The man turned, eyes as wide as saucers on Andrew. He opened his mouth and muttered something that Andrew wasn't sure he'd heard correctly. The elevator door slid open just as Andrew leaned in and asked, Um, sorry, brother, but did you just say, run? The man leaped into the elevator, pressed his spine against the back wall, and fixed his eyes on the glass numbers above the closing doors. Andrew stood blinking at his reflection in the chrome elevator doors. After a moment, he shrugged and continued down the hallway, where he came upon a second handwritten sign directing him to turn left at the women's bathroom. He rounded a corner and found himself staring at 11 men seated in folding chairs. They all looked up from their iPhones and Androids. Andrew nodded and headed toward the pretty blonde seated behind the metal desk. Good morning, she smiled. Name? Andrew Jameson. Okay, Mr. Jameson, please take a seat. Mrs. Americus will be with you shortly. He scrutinized his fellow applicants. They were all black men, save for the one white guy with a man bun, who was called in as soon as Andrew sat down. Man bun wasn't in there long. In less than five minutes, cheeks flushed and cursing under his breath, he stormed across the reception area and out of sight. Andrew clenched his jaw and made eye contact with another man across the room from him. He imagined the unease in the man's eyes mirrored his own uncertainty. Andrew Jameson? Mrs. Americus will see you now, just through that door. The door opened to a large office filled with cubicles and desks, manned by women tapping away on typewriters or murmuring into the handsets of, ooh, Andrew slowed his gait. Are those rotary telephones? And wait, <laughs> royal typewriters? As Andrew gawked, a large man with a mustache as thick as a shoe brush appeared before him. Andrew glanced up and then quickly shifted his gaze away from the brawny man's left eyelid, which was weighed down with a sty the size of a dime. In there, the man huffed, aiming a chubby finger at a closed door not more than five feet from where they stood. The office was as small as a janitor's closet, 
and dark. The lone window on the far left wall faced the shadowy back of a department store. Metal file cabinets lined the walls. Some of the drawers were open, revealing manila folders bulging with papers. He could see, even in the muddy darkness of the room, a layer of dust atop the cabinets. Hanging on the walls were at least 20 framed photographs of people, all of whom were black. The air was rife with the scent of cigarette smoke. Andrew remembered people smoking at their desks when he went to visit his mother at her office job when he was young. Once, on a flight to Detroit with his grandmother, he stood at the back of the plane waiting to use the bathroom and found himself engulfed in the cloud of smoke billowing from the cigarettes of three passengers. He couldn't recall the exact year cities around the country began banning smoking in bars and restaurants, but he was supremely aware that smokers had to be at least 400 feet away from the entrance of any building if they wanted to light up. Yet here was this woman puffing away like it was 1975. Andrew eyed the near-empty box of Winston's and then the woman. She was robust, a meat-and-potato sort of gal with doughy cheeks and large blue eyes. Her sun-bleached blonde hair fanned back from her face, a style made famous by the 80s icon Farrah Fawcett. Her lips were slathered in tangerine-colored lipstick. The same color rung the filters of a dozen long-dead Winston butts heaped in the black ceramic ashtray. Andrew thought, if she's going for a clown instead of glamour, well, bullseye. Ornate rings twinkled on seven of her ten fingers. The rose gold chain she wore around her neck dribbled down her chest and disappeared into her cleavage. She looked to be in her mid-fifties. Good morning, Mr. Jameson. Please have a seat. Her eyes remained glued to the sheet of paper clutched in her hands. Andrew assumed it was his resume. He sat down. You graduated from Brown University? Yes, I did. I graduated summa cum laude in 1990. Her desk was cluttered with newspaper clippings, stacks of aging yellowed papers, and dated fashion magazines. Andrew's eyebrows climbed. Was that Marsha Brady from the 70s sitcom The Brady Bunch on the cover of that glamour magazine? Andrew chuckled to himself. This had to be an elaborate joke. Someone was putting him on. His eyes ranged around the office in search of a concealed camera. Impressive, she said, finally looking him directly in the eye. Do you have a wife? Sorry? Are you married, Mr. Jameson? No, I'm not. She searched his face. Are you gay? Andrew bristled. Mrs. Americus, I don't think you're legally allowed to ask me that question. She smirked. It's a yes or no question, Mr. Jameson. I know it's unusual, but believe me, for this position, I would need to know. His rent was due tomorrow, and then again in 30 more days. His savings were dwindling. No, I'm not gay. Do you have children? One daughter. She's 22 years old. Do you have a good relationship with your daughter, with the mother? Yes. Mrs. Americas glanced at his resume. Perfect. She reached for the dying cigarette and brought it to her lips. And according to your application, you've never been arrested. Is that true? Yes. Well... We will be doing a background check. Understood. Do you have any bad habits? Do you use narcotics? No, ma'am. Any, um, undesirable recreational activities? Undesirable? Porn? 
Well, well, not just porn. Kitty porn? Andrew's mouth fell open. No judgment, Mr. Jamison. Again, I just need to know. No, I don't watch kitty porn, Andrew spat. Good, she exclaimed, drumming her fingers on the desk. Let me tell you the specifics of the job. Some of the faces behind the glass frames looked familiar. Again, Andrew found himself squinting. Was that Omarosa? He pitched forward in his chair. Mrs. America stopped talking and followed his gaze. Um, yes, she spouted. That is who you think it is. She's been one of our best recruits. Andrew swallowed. Mrs. America stubbed out her cigarette and laced her fingers under her chin. Some of our liaisons work directly with government agencies. That's a promotion of sorts. Of course, before you can be assigned to the big house, I I mean, to the White House, you'd have to prove yourself out in the field. (laughs) She giggled. In the field, you get it? It's, It's a double entendre. Andrew's mouth went dry. She twisted around in the chair and pointed to a photograph of a pair of middle-aged women standing shoulder to shoulder, each holding a red MAGA baseball cap. Those ladies are diamond and silk. Do you know them? Andrew shot out from the chair. For a moment, he thought his knees would buckle. What does OBF stand for? Mrs. Americas reached for the pack of cigarettes. OBF stands for One Black Friend. One black friend? Yes. You see, in these troubling times, times where so many people are labeling white people as racist, we need black people to stand up for us, to have our backs, as your people are fond of saying. Sometimes, Mr. Jameson, a God-fearing, good white person may be accused of a crime or some other offense perpetrated against a person of color. And when the accused does not have a person of color in his circle it looks bad. The public may see him or her as a racist simply because their circle is white. Lily. And that's wrong. Not having black friends does not make a white person racist by default. Anyway, she waved her hand. That's where OBF comes in. We provide that one black friend. That one black friend introduces doubt, and more often than not, that doubt diminishes a large percentage of the negative impact our clients might face. Andrew just stared. Oh, Mr. Jameson, don't look so shocked. This practice has been around for centuries. She pointed to the far wall near the window. You see that guy there? He was actually the inspiration for this company. Andrew peered at the photograph. Who is he? Joe Oliver. Joe Oliver? Yeah, Joe Oliver. You don't remember him. Joe Oliver, George Zimmerman's one black friend. Mrs. America's raised a black ceramic coffee mug to her lips and sipped. The red decal on the side of the mug read, Black Tears. Andrew's stomach lurched, perspiration beating across his forehead. This is some kind of joke, right? Oh, I assure you, this is not a joke, and I'm very serious. As serious as a heart attack. (laughs) Is that how the saying goes? As serious as a heart attack. Andrew started toward the door. Wait, wait, Mr. Jameson, look here. She pointed at a photograph hanging above the row of filing cabinets. This is another one of our liaisons. 
Since he's been working for us, he's paid off his student loans, and I understand that he's just recently purchased a Cadillac. Andrew followed her index finger to the photo of a grinning black man holding a Blacks for Trump sign above his head like a trophy. Shall we talk about salary? The lights flickered. He thought, maybe I'm still asleep. Maybe this is a nightmare. Andrew, I can see you're having a hard time processing all of this, but really, it's not as uncommon as you might think. We live in America. This is a capitalist country, and we monetize everything. Everything. Andrew couldn't remember reaching for the doorknob, but suddenly he was stumbling through the reception area. He fled down the corridor, rounded the first corner, and then the next. A slight man, the color of honeyed milk, stepped from the elevator. He wore a yellow dress shirt with a red bow tie. His dark blue khakis were flooded just enough to offer a wink of his orange and navy argyle socks. Upon Andrew's frantic approach, the startled stranger stepped swiftly out of his path. Andrew didn't make eye contact. He jabbed at the elevator button until the door slid open. Weeks later, Andrew was seated in a truck stop diner with his fork poised over a plate of scrambled eggs and corned beef hash. The mounted television was tuned to Fox News. The anchor reported that yet another young black man had been gunned down by a vigilante, another good Samaritan named Christopher Parks. Christopher Parks was heading home from his job as a sanitation man when he spotted young Daniel Latham sitting in Starbucks, dozing over his law textbooks. Parks entered the establishment, woke Latham with a tap to his shoulder, and asked if he lived in the area. According to eyewitnesses, Latham replied that he did, in fact, live in the neighborhood. Parks demanded to see Latham's ID and was met with laughter. The law student gathered his belongings and stood to leave. Rather menacingly, one eyewitness reported. That was when Christopher Parks pulled his weapon and fired. The stunned Latham, still laughing, crumbled into his chair and pressed his hand over the hole in his heart. It wasn't until he saw the blood that the smile slipped from his lips and he began to cry. The cops were called, but not an ambulance. Well, not immediately. The police shackled Latham to the chair and took Parks to the police station for questioning. The woman behind the counter gave Parks a high five and a tall cafe mocha to go. By the time an ambulance arrived, Daniel Latham was dead, having bled out all over his take-home final exam. In the days that followed, it was revealed that Daniel Latham had several unpaid parking tickets and was thrice fined for not scooping his dog's poop. Not only that, he was also a practicing Buddhist who supported a woman's right to choose. A search of Latham's apartment unearthed a well-worn copy of Alex Haley's The Autobiography of Malcolm X, which was on his nightstand alongside Jay-Z's Decoded. This discovery was further evidence that Latham was no angel. Laura Ingram looked directly into the camera and told her viewers that Christopher Parks was a hero. 
a polite and well-spoken man who had been raised by his father after his mother died from breast cancer when he was just three years old. Yes, as a youth, Christopher had been suspended from school for fighting, and as a young man, he'd beaten a girlfriend with a pipe. Later, when he was in his early 30s, he'd threatened to castrate his boss, a black man old enough to be his grandfather. All of that behavior, Laura Ingram said, was directly connected to the trauma of losing a mother at such a tender age. She paused, and in that moment, her entire face pulsed with empathy. That said, she continued, Al Sharpton, along with the Black Lives Matter terrorist organization, have labeled Christopher Parks a racist and are calling for his arrest. She shook her head and chuckled. Earlier today, I had the pleasure of speaking with Christopher's longtime best friend, Andrew Jameson. Andrew lowered his fork, reached for his shades, and slipped them onto his face. You just heard OBF Inc. by Bernice L. McFadden, read by Tegel F. Bouget. Yes, the story is fiction, but those real-world examples feel eerily plausible, don't they? I'm just saying, if we discover a business card that says OBF in a prominent politician's wallet, I wouldn't be too shocked. I'm Malik Pancholi. Thanks for joining me for Selected Shorts. Selected Shorts is produced by Jennifer Brennan. Our literary team is Matthew Love, Drew Richardson, and Vivian Woodward. Our director of marketing is Mary Shimkin. Our radio producer is Sarah Montague. The readings are recorded by Miles B. Smith. Our mix engineer is Deborah Daughtry. Our theme music is David Peterson's That's the Deal, performed by the Deerdorf Peterson Group. Selected Shorts is supported by the Dungannon Foundation, creator of the Ray Award for the Short Story. Support is also provided by the Howard Gilman Foundation, the NYC COVID-19 Response and Impact Fund and the New York Community Trust, the Schubert Foundation, the Blanchette Hooker Rockefeller Fund, the Sharina Endowment Fund, the Achelis and Bodman Foundation, the Henry Nias Foundation, the Consolidated Edison Company of New York, the Vita Foundation, the Axe Houghton Foundation, the Lemberg Foundation, and the Grodzins Fund. Selected Shorts is also made possible by the National Endowment for the Arts and with public funds from the New York State Council on the Arts with the support of Governor Andrew Cuomo and the New York State Legislature. Symphony Space thanks our generous supporters, including our board of directors, producer circle, and members who make our programs possible with their annual support. Selected Shorts is produced and distributed by Symphony Space.